0: So good to see you all in the auditorium. Welcome to everyone watching in the venue, and welcome to those watching at com. We know that there are many that are uh, staying at home right now for, for different reasons, or from time to time can't come to church on Sunday morning, and are at com. and we welcome you also, and so grateful you're also part of our church family. But uh, it's awesome to see everyone here, as the church is starting to come back together more and more with each passing week, it seems uh, great to be with you today. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church. If we haven't met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. We're going to be in John chapter 18, verse 28 in just a moment. You might turn there with me or open there in your Bible app. I would just reiterate what Matt has already said. Many, many thanks to our veterans this morning on Veterans Day weekend. Can we give them a round of applause? Yeah. Amen. We're so grateful for your service. We have a looping slideshow before the service, and I think after the service as well, you can see a number of veterans from our church family. Uh, We're going to jump in here today again to John chapter 18 as we're continuing well with this Mark It Up series in the Gospel of John, and we're moving toward the end of this series, which of course is moving toward Passion Weekend with Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And today, well, we come upon a passage in which Jesus talks about the kind of kingdom that he sought to establish. The Romans of Jesus' day had a kingdom, to be sure. They knew just the kind of kingdom that they wanted. It was one of power and military might. It was one of conquering other kingdoms. They had previously conquered the Greeks, and they had conquered the israelis and many many others and their kingdom continued to expand with each passing decade the roman kingdom was one that was exceedingly powerful maybe the most powerful kingdom in the world up to that point and its scope was getting greater and greater with each passing decade it was a powerful kingdom for many different reasons. It was the military and administrative excellence that the Romans had. But then after they conquered the Greek kingdom and took over where the Greeks started, they also had the incredible academic and artistic excellence and philosophical excellence that made the Greek kingdom flourish. So the Romans, when they thought of the kingdom, they thought of keeping things the way they were. The Jews... When they thought of kingdom, they had another idea. Their idea for kingdom was, can we please have a kingdom where we can fly our Israel flag? Can we please have a kingdom where we are not second-class citizens anymore? Can we please have a kingdom where all people around us would practice the laws of kosher and Sabbath and sacrifice-keeping, and maybe there would be some Gentiles and Romans and Samaritans, but probably not. We don't care for those people too much. We'd like to keep them out of our kingdom. And then enters Jesus with a very different kind of kingdom. We pick up the story, though, this morning in the middle of Jesus' trial in which he's been betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Talked about that a bit last week. And he's been abandoned by his dear friend Peter, who has denied him three times at his hour of greatest need. He's been arrested by Caiaphas and Annas and the Jewish authorities, but even as he's been abandoned, arrested, and betrayed, Jesus remains in charge, doesn't he? He remains in charge, and after this trial with Annas and Caiaphas, what happens next is these two Authorities, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests of the Jews, they shake hands with the leaders of the Romans. Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate are enemies, but they shake hands in this moment, and that old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that becomes true in this moment as we enter the story. We'll pick it up there again at John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. The verses are on the screen as well, but I hope you follow along in your Bible. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest over the Jews, to the palace of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. What's that about? So the Jews, the Passover is coming. They want to be able to celebrate the greatest of all Jewish festivals, which is the Passover, which comes each and every year. But in order to celebrate the Passover, they cannot come in touch with anything that is unclean. And Jewish law of the day had kind of moved and been misshapen in certain ways, such as Jews believed, at least Jewish religious leaders believed, that to be in the contact of a Gentile was to make you unclean. So they really want something from Pontius Pilate, but the trouble is Pontius Pilate is a Gentile. And so they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, but they stay outside in the courtyard so that they don't have to come in touch with Pontius Pilate, and so they can then celebrate the Passover. The irony of all this is delicious. Like, (laughs) I mean, they're about to celebrate their exodus out of slavery in Egypt. And yet they miss the one, the Messiah, who has come to give them freedom from slavery, from sin. And they do so as they appeal to the one who is currently making them second-class citizens. That's the context as they want to eat the Passover, but they want even more to bring Jesus to Pilate. So Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they say, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, his, his crime is he's a criminal. In other words, why are you asking? Like, isn't it obvious In other words, we got nothing, but would you please kill him? That's what's going on here. They don't have the authority to kill someone themselves because they do not have overarching governing authority of their land. They are under a ruler called the Roman Empire. And so they want the Roman governor of that region, Pontius Pilate, who's responsible for Judea and Jerusalem and that region to kill Jesus for them. Okay, so if the Jews had a lust for blood, it's the Romans, though, that we're going to see here who have a lust for power. You see that in the rest of this passage as Pontius Pilate begins questioning Jesus, and I want you to notice as he questions Jesus, his biggest emphasis is, are you a king? He's trying to preserve his own government, trying to preserve the way things are. So he goes on, verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they say, but we have no right to execute anyone. We want him killed. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Jesus was like the king of the indirect answer, wasn't he? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Well, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born... And came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. With this, he went out again to the Jews and gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no. No no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a violent man who had taken part in an uprising. And so the Jews choose this violent man named Barabbas who had taken part in an uprising, who was a known thief and robber over the king of truth. Why is that? Because Jesus offered entrance, he offered an invitation to all people to enter into a different kind of kingdom altogether, and they were threatened by that. It wasn't the kind of kingdom that the Jews wanted, and it was the kind of kingdom that Pilate would potentially be threatened by. It was a kingdom for every different kind of people, for Jews and Gentiles alike. It was a kingdom for first class people and second class people. In fact, it was a kingdom that wouldn't have any kind of class of people. It was a kingdom where every person really does matter. It's a kingdom where you would say human authority matters, but human authority does not hold a candle to God's authority, which is way above any human authority. And that again was a threat to both Pilate and the Jews. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, it raises the question for us, well, what kind of kingdom was this that Jesus sought to establish? What I want to do here, though, this morning is not sit as much in the narrative that I just read, that narrative is rich by itself, but what I'd like to do is just sit in the statement that, that Jesus said, that I have come to establish a different kind of kingdom, and we might ask the question, what kind of kingdom did he come to establish? If you're taking notes here, this is a critical point to take note of. The kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's the reign of God in you. Jesus began his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here and now. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God in you, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your communities. We could go on in your workplaces, in your hospitals, in our schools. It's the rule and the reign of God wherever we live. This is the most common teaching of Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John talks about a little bit less, but it's found all over the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the most common teaching of Jesus, the kingdom of God, but I've found over the years that many times Christians don't know what the kingdom of God is about. I want to spend a little bit of time t- talking about that. Whenever you see something utterly beautiful in the world, such that you would say, wow, it's just so gorgeous what I see there. It's utterly beautiful. It's incredible. The, like the, the justice in that, the compassion in that. Anytime you see something in the world that you say, that just kind of looks like Jesus in the Gospels. That's the kingdom of God. Okay? It's the rule of God an individual men, women, and children that reflects the will of God or reflects the way of Jesus. So I think of what one of our ministries called Men in Action, and when I think of the guys who fought for Men of Action on one Saturday per-, per month going out to a single mother's house or a widow or a widower's house or some other family in distress within our church community, and this team of four or five guys got going out there for three hours on one occasion per month, To serve widows and those who sometimes have lost their fathers for whatever reason, and to help them around the house on a monthly basis for a few hours to bring a smile into their home, that is the kingdom of God here on earth. You see what I'm saying? Like, I I mean, I see a bunch of you nodded with me because you're like, yeah, that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus. That's what Jesus would do, that's the kingdom of God. Or when you think of even like someone downstairs, an elderly person saying, yeah, I'm going to choose not to stay permanently retired, but I'm going to serve in kids' ministries and help a kindergartner and walk with them in their faith. Or I think of a teenager who chooses to work with a first grader and smiles tenderly as that teenager guides a first grader downstairs. That can be the kingdom of heaven Spreading here on earth, here and now. The kingdom of God spreads through compassion and kindness and strength. Whatever looks like Jesus as we are acting under the will of God, saying, God, have your way in my life right now, it's wherever Christ is reigning. It's a kingdom that's not bound by nationality or politics or power. It's a kingdom made up of people from every tribe, and language, and nation, and race, all different kinds of people around the world of every generation. It's a kingdom that we can count on when earthly kingdoms succeed, and it's a kingdom that we can count on when earthly kingdoms fail us. And Lord knows we're going to experience both, aren't we? Earthly kingdoms that succeed and earthly kingdoms that fail us, but those are not our ultimate kingdom It's the kingdom of God that continues regardless of the success or failure of those kingdoms. It's wherever Christ reigns. Okay, so it can be experienced here and now, and yet at the same time, it's also a not yet reality. So theologians say it this way, the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet here. Okay, so it's already experienced by us when we walk in the will of God, when we live as Jesus would live, When he is reigning over our lives and we're acting like Jesus today, we're living in the kingdom, but not all the way. Okay, not all the way because there's other forces that are still operant in this world. Are are there not? Like my force, which is not always very good. I don't know about your force, like not, not force, but okay, I'm not talking Star Wars. Stick with me. Okay, I have a will that is sometimes good, but sometimes not so good. Okay, and so the kingdom of God sometimes reigns in my family, but sometimes anger percolates in my family. And that's not the kingdom of God because there's other forces going on in my life that I have to fight against with the power of the Holy Spirit is in me such that I would operate more in what Jesus wants done. Of course, there's the force of the enemy. There's the force of the sinful realities of the world that we live in. So we get to enjoy and live in the kingdom of God now but not completely the way our departed loved ones in Christ get to enjoy the kingdom of God fully today. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that, let me give you three characteristics of the kingdom of God as we seek to live into it today. And Jesus speaks to this first one here. The first one of these is big truth. The kingdom of God is characterized by big truth with a capital T, not a lowercase t. We see this again from Jesus in verse 37. You say that I am a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. To which Pilate laughs and sarcastically responds, Ha what is truth? Okay, so Jesus has in mind there truth with a capital T. Pilate has in mind there truth with a lowercase t. Truth that is merely my preference. Like it turns out that postmodernism isn't all that modern after all, is it? Okay, here is Pilate articulating postmodernism way back in 30 AD. Pilate's view of truth was essentially might makes right. Might makes right. Whoever's in power, whoever is mighty, That person gets to determine what truth is. Now, this is a view of truth that is growing, I would say, in the United States, that might makes right. And whoever's in power gets to define that for everyone else. And sometimes families will do this so that a father will say to his kid, this is what you must do. Why? Because I tell you to do it. Why? Because I'm the dad. Why? Because I'm the dad. Well, guess what? That works pretty well when your kid is five, but doesn't work too well when your kid is 15. Right? That will not persuade your 15 year old. He will need more than that, more than might makes right when it comes to the big questions of truth. The postmodern view of truth is always subjectively defined. It's truth that's kind of down below. How do I define truth for my reasons within my culture, within the artists and the musicians and the entertainers that I traffic with? How do I define truth? Whereas the Christian view of truth is always from above, over us, transcendent and bigger than us. There's many ways that postmodern views of truth get articulated for us in our culture. Sometimes it's might makes right. Sometimes it's determined by my ethnicity or my heritage. It's what my people say is true is true. That's another view of post, that's another form of postmodern truth. Sometimes it's determined by the artists and the entertainers and the Hollywood types who tell us what to believe. Truth is sometimes determined by the majority, according to postmodernism. Majority thinks that pornography is no big deal, that it doesn't hurt anyone, then it's no big deal. Doesn't hurt anyone. No, Jesus, in the Christian view of things, would say there are overarching truths that are way bigger than what you feel. Okay? Way bigger than what anyone feels. Most commonly, postmodern view of truth goes like this. I'll determine truth for me, and you determine truth for you. As it's frequently said today, it goes like, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. Whatever. Or, girl, you do you. You hear that one lately? Man, you just go do you. That's postmodern view of truth. You figure it out for you. You go do you. You figure out what is true for you. Whatever, as the boys from Boyzone put it. And this is not my favorite boy band. In fact, I don't have a favorite boy band. I don't listen to boy bands, I'll have you know. Okay, all right, this is not my kind of music, but stick with me here. As the boys from Boyzone put it, no matter what they tell you, no matter what they say, no matter what they teach you, what you believe is true. You hear it? Like, does that work with your bank account? (laughs) Does that work with algebra? What you believe is true. Like, how does that work in a home? My goodness. Whatever you believe is true. In one way or another, these are all views of truth that are similar to Pilate's. What is truth with a capital T, Jesus? Like, come on. Let's get away from all these objective statements, though, that you're making about yourself. But friends, the kingdom of God is characterized by truth with all caps as given to us by God. God gives us truth. We don't define it for ourselves. That's not to say that I have the corner of all truth. We Christians should not say that we have the corner on all truth. What we should say is God has revealed all truth, and I am doing everything I possibly can as a follower of Christ to discover what he has revealed. Now, I'm not perfect as an interpreter of the Bible, And so I shouldn't say that I have all truth all the time. That makes us sound arrogant and piggish, and it can be proved false when we have to change our view because we didn't have all the evidence that we thought we needed to make a conclusion. Okay, I don't have all truth, but God does. God does, and I listen to him, and he has revealed truth to me, and we can increasingly grow in our knowledge, our apprehension, and our application of truth. And to live our lives on the basis of revealed truth, That it's a really good historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so I'm going to follow everything that he says. That the Bible is the most reliable book of antiquity. And it's not even close. The New Testament documents are incredibly reliable. And so I'm going to found my life upon them. Or really good virtuous life begins with the Ten Commandments. And this is a rock-solid truth that I'm going to hold on to, and I'm going to build my life out of that. And if you have that, then the result is you have strength when the winds of life begin to buffet you. With a subjective or postmodern view of truth, what you inevitably have is a house of cards. And the next leader, the next ruler, the next trend, the next entertainer, We'll pull one of those cards out and the whole house will fall to the ground. But when you have a view of truth that we see from Christianity, the truth is from above and we don't subjectively determine ourselves, then you have stability. That there will be different leaders, there will be different rulers, there will be different artists and entertainers, but I have stability that holds me when everyone else is crumbling because the trends are constantly changing. Jesus said elsewhere, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the nature of truth, with a capital T. It actually sets us true. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully in his little book, The Case for Christianity. He says, if you're looking for truth, you may find comfort. You start with truth, and then you might get comfort thrown in on top of that. But if you're looking for comfort, you will get neither comfort nor truth only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. You might get a nice feeling to begin with. You might get some pleasure to begin with, but you won't get any lasting truth. In fact, you will not get any lasting comfort that holds you when the winds of life come in and buffet you. Again, to live across decades without a true north star is despair. It leaves us at the mercy of people like Pontius Pilate and others who would say, this is truth, might makes right. Pilate, here's the point related to this passage, Pilate always had to raise his fingers with quotation marks around the word truth. Pilate couldn't live without quotation marks around the word truth. We as Christians, we cannot live with quotation marks around truth. We believe in truth with a capital T, all caps as given us from God. We believe in big truth. And life in the kingdom of God is one of big truth in authority and ruler and laws and goodness way bigger than any of us. Second, uh, life in the kingdom is characterized by small beginnings. It's characterized by big truth and then small beginnings. Over in Matthew 13, Jesus strings together a number of different parables about the kingdom of God and uh, if you ever wonder how brilliant Jesus is, I encourage you to read Matthew 13. It's like one after another, about eight or nine different parables just from his mind. Try to, try to come up with a parable on your own. It's like really, really hard to do. I've been trying to do it for 24 years. I still haven't come up with one. Okay, Jesus just comes up with parables one after another. He is utterly brilliant. And here's one of them to describe the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, 31, and 32, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven which is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The kingdom of God begins like a mustard seed, which I have in here. Can you see it? No, you can't see it. Like, I I can hardly see it. It's that small. The kingdom of heaven begins like this, yet expands in the most beautiful way, not through power and accumulation as normal kingdoms expand, but through Calvary-like love, through sacrificial, other-centered, going under, service-oriented, Calvary like love. That is how the kingdom of God expands. I love the way the prophet Zechariah puts it. He says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. God is in the small stuff. He's not just in the great big things that we want to do, He's in the small things that we do every day. Do not despise the small beginnings. Life in the kingdom of God is about small beginnings which eventually grow in the most beautiful and unexpected ways that nobody would have planned. Many years ago, I was a part of a homeless ministry. You heard though this morning. Well, we're starting a homeless ministry where we'll pick up homeless folks from the different um, homeless shelters here in town. There's actually two homeless shelters in town. But years ago, I was a part of a homeless ministry in my previous area of ministry. I was part of a church in North Denver and then in Boulder, And there was a homeless shelter in Boulder, and there's about 200 residents there, and there wasn't a single church that was doing any ministry to pick up homeless on Sunday morning and bring them to church. To which you might be like, well, there aren't any churches in Boulder. (laughs) Actually, there were. Okay, some really good ones. And our church decided, you know, this just isn't right. This is not right. Right. There'll be 200 people down the street from us who oftentimes do not have hope and nobody from the place that has greatest hope is picking them up to bring them hope. This just isn't right. And so we started a little ministry in which a friend of mine and I got a church van and we started going over to, to the homeless shelter and picking up folks and bringing them back to the church and within several weeks, one van well wasn't enough because uh, there were so many homeless people in that community, and there were so many though, that were living well without hope, and so we had to get another van, and while well, we were getting two vans of 25 to 30 people to come over, and they would enter into the facility, and they would have coffee and donuts and sit in a safe place where they learned, sometimes for the very first time that I matter, that I am loved, that I am not to be kicked to the curb, and in a number of cases over the course of a number of years, folks that would come from the homeless shelter came to learn that Jesus Christ died for me too. And Jesus Christ rose again for me too and they bowed their lives to Christ and it changed them from the inside out and slowly but surely, the God of small things began to change things for a number of these individuals. It was some of the most incredible and gratifying ministry that I've ever been a part of. One of the guys that I got to know over the years was a man named Tony. And Tony became good friends with our family. He came into our home on a regular basis. And after a couple years of being in the homeless shelter, he uh, got a job and he was able to to reach a point of self-sufficiency and got an apartment. And we maintained good friendships for for quite a long time. And he was regularly coming into our home. and, And I mean, Tony had some mental issues, but Tony was not into drugs or alcohol. He was just beat down by life and didn't have the kind of resources that we would have when we get beat down by life. You see, the difference between a lot of homeless people and us is they don't have the resources when they get beat down, whereas we do. We have a margin that other people will help us when we get beat down. And that was Tony. He didn't have any margin, well, when he got beat down by by life. Eventually, he comes to faith. He grows in his faith. Um, He left Boulder a couple years ago, and he moved to Michigan to take a job as an associate pastor. And today, Tony, still to this day, is an associate pastor up in Michigan, Speaking to the glory and the goodness of God, the power of God to change a life, to change his life, and Tony, I'm telling you, I'm in touch with him two or three times a year, he and I still continue to talk, and the God of small things began with Tony as a little mustard seed, but now today, Tony is a mustard tree. He's like that now, okay? He's given it to others, the same love and grace and care that he received from other people, and he received giving to others. Now, friends, I don't know what God will do through E-Free Transit, but I do know this. God will bless the small things that we do. God blesses small, faithful energy that is given to things that he actually cares about, and God cares about the margins. Amen? God cares about the margins, and he will go after the margins, and he will use people like us who say, I don't need to do a great thing, but what I do need to do is small things with great love. Because the kingdom of God goes through small beginnings. The kingdom of God is about big truth. It's about small beginnings. And then finally, the kingdom of God is about great joy. Another one of the parables that Jesus gives is in Matthew 13, And he says, the kingdom of heaven, again, the kingdom of God, those terms are interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. He said, I got to get that. And then in his joy, he went out and he sold all that he had to go buy that field. He says, I cannot live without that treasure that I've just found. What treasure is so great that a man would give up everything in order to obtain it? Jesus says the kingdom of God is the key to living in the joy of his kingdom. And the key to living in the joy of his kingdom is, it's the gospel. It's receiving. It's enjoying It's living in the gospel, and that percolates into joy across all of life. It's the greatest thing that we would sell all other things to get, but thankfully we don't have to sell all other things to get it. Jesus just gives it to us. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is this. God so loves you that he gave his one and only son that you would be freely forgiven by him, and you would give entrance into his family by the grace of God. And not only does he forgive you, but also he redeems you. And not only does he redeem you, but but also he gives you entrance into his family. Not only does he give you entrance into his family, but he calls you his son or daughter. Not only does he call you his son or daughter, but he calls you his friend. This is the good news of living in the kingdom of God. We get to operate in this reality. I am a friend of God because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. And when you live in that, Let me tell you, friends, joy is always around the corner. No matter your circumstances, joy can always be around the corner when you live in the reality of the cross. I think one of the things that we do wrong in the church is we emphasize guilt and fear and rule keeping so much that we sometimes fail to emphasize the love and joy of Christ. Now, please don't get me wrong. I believe guilt has a proper place, absolutely. And I fear doing the wrong thing. And I want to keep the rules. But those aren't near the motivators that love and joy are. Like, to know that I am loved by God unconditionally frees me and compels me and motivates me to live more for him. And when I'm living out of that, joy is just around the corner. To know that he is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. He loves you, he likes you, you are a friend of God. Does that not make you want to sing and dance? I, I mean, if you actually believe these things, such like this man in the parable, he says, oh, To have that, like I don't care about my iPhone anymore. I really don't care about my Corvette anymore. I don't have a Corvette. I don't care about winning popularity contests anymore. I don't care about human approval anymore. Because I have freedom in the kingdom of God. Which percolates into joy and touches all of life. This is what God wants for us. It's the kingdom of God that we would dwell in There would be the rule of God in you. It's the rule of God in your family. It's the rule of God in your community. It's the rule of God in your neighborhood. It's potentially even the rule of God in your workplace, in your school, going out in small but beautiful ways as we hold on to big truth and it leads us to exceeding joy. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring and he invites you and me into it. You want that? I want that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you, uh, you gave your son, and you gave your son for something better than just rules and power and nationalism. You gave your son for us to enjoy eternal life. Starting today, and for all of eternity. After we die, all the more. But even today, that we would live in your kingdom in such a way that we can be a part of the good work that you're trying to do in this world. Thank you, God, that you'll use our small and meager offerings, whatever they might be, for your name, for your honor, and for your glory, you will use them. So God, give us courage to use them. Give us courage not to hold hold back the best of what we have to give for this world. Some of us are giving the best that we have to give to this world, and we're not giving anything to join the mission of what you want done in your church and for your kingdom. So Father, to the extent that's true for us, please forgive us and help us to give our small offerings, knowing full well that you will use them for your good purposes in the world. And Lord, would you stabilize us in your truth, and would you grant us exceeding joy, no matter the pain of this life, Grant us a settled experience of joy. That God is for me, God is for me, God is for me. He will never leave us or forsake us. And in your presence is life and joy and wholeness forevermore. In the mighty name of Christ, we pray together. Amen.